What's happening, y'all? I'm Will Lavise. He's Eric Claville. You're tuned into Lavise and Claville, where we give it to you straight the way it is from a black male's perspective. So let's get right to it. Today is one of our favorite shows, and it's why we love HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. You know, both of us, Claville, myself, I'm a graduate of Lincoln University of Pennsylvania, the first HBCU, founded in 1854, proud Lincoln, Lyon, and Claville from Southern University. Southern University, Jaguars, uh, of course. We know that there's no greater band, no greater college experience than on the yard at Southern. And also a double graduate, Southern University Law Center. Of course, I've got my Moot Court board shirt on. Uh, again, the greatest experience I've had at both institutions. And right behind me, I have the Blazing Hot 91 from Norfolk State University. That's right. You work at Norfolk State. That's right. I'm currently a professor. You know, so this is somewhere where Jaguars and Spartans meet. And uh, we've got a radio show. I've been blessed to have one here on the station called State of the Water. It deals with public policy, law, and politics. Everything that I love to do, I've been able to do it here at IHBCUs. And I will be remiss. I got to give love to Hampton University on the other on the other side of the water where I had my radio show, the Will Levy Show, on Smooth 88.1 WHOV. Uh, where jazz lives. I've had that show for um, several years at Hampton University, also taught there in the journalism department. So again, it's just that pride in having HBCUs. Now, Eric, when we were talking about this and talking about doing this show, you actually found uh, somebody posted on the internet, um, 10 reasons why, uh, 10 reasons to attend HBCU. Talk a little bit about that. Where, where'd you get that from? Yeah, so there's a group called HBCU Alumni United. Over 84,000 HBCU alumni are on this Facebook page. Uh, of course, when I talk about Facebook itself, of course, we're talking about a generation uh, that still uses Facebook. Those of us with kids, we keep up with each other, kids. We don't have time for Snapchat. Uh, we don't have time for, you know, these other social media pieces because we got jobs. <laughs> we work. <laughs> we like to get our rest, you know, when, when it actually turns dark. You know, we can't do it like we used to do growing up. No, no, speak for yourself. Speak for yourself, man. I can still do it like I used to do. Still do it like I used to do when I went, well, well not quite. When I was on the yard, not quite, not quite. Well, listen, I, was, I am speaking for me. I can't do it. <laughs> Trust me. But, uh, but, <laughs> but what this list talks about, you know, Will and I, part of our show, and this is a fun show for us because it's, it's a show that's near and dear to our hearts. Our, we got our education, our foundation HBCUs. Uh, we both taught HBCUs. Matter of fact, Will and I both met at Hampton University, where I served as a professor, and also my wife served as a professor there and administrator. You know, and we had phenomenal opportunities here at all of HBCUs, whether it be at Lincoln, be at Southern, Southern University, and Southern University Law Center, uh, whether it be at Hampton, whether it be at Norfolk State University. You know, we've had phenomenal opportunities to really explore not just things that we love, right. but from perspective. Absolutely, right? absolutely. And, you know, in some, and it's something, man, you know, we've both gone on and gotten, you know, additional degrees. But when people ask me where I graduated from, where I got, I always revert back to the Lincoln University of Pennsylvania. So I went, you know, I went to the University of Arizona. I love University of Arizona. Go Wildcats, you know, Arizona. Got my journalism uh, master's. 
And then I got my doctorate at Old Dominion University down the block. Go Monarchs, you know? So, uh, but I love all these institutions. But when somebody asks me, you know, ask me, where did you, you know, where did you graduate from? You know, I just always revert back to Lincoln. And the interesting thing about me is that you heard me mention all those schools. All of them, all of them got cat, cat uh, uh, mascots. So, I you know, I don't know what's up with that. But, you know, it is what it is. It's something about that roar, you know, something about that. Look, it is. You mentioned other universities. I got my graduate degree uh, from Louisiana State University, LSU. I've, I've served, I've, I've been able to participate as a faculty scholar at NYU uh, University up in New York City uh, during the summer once. And again, we've had an opportunity to go other places, experience other opportunities, right. education. But we all refer back to our HBCU experience. Right. Uh, and we refer to every place being the yard. So let's count it down. Let's hit that countdown, definitely. Number 10. Yeah, number 10, you'll be in good company. Now, you know, we when we talk about HBCUs, we know that they're historically black. We know that all of them were created out of opportunity for African-Americans and from that we created culture. But when, when people talk about blacks being the same, you know, or they talk about the black church or they talk about the black school or the black community. Well, everybody that's in the black community is different. Right. Everybody that's in the church is different. As a matter of fact, there are different types of churches. So when you'll be in good company, that means you're going to be not only with African-Americans and get a wealth of experience and, and, and interaction with Black people, not just from, the, uh, from the, the U.S. itself, but also outside of the United States, right. other, uh, other countries, and also from other non-Black countries. But also, you're going to get experience from people who are Black like you, but have different experiences. Yeah, it, I, you know, it, you know I, I think you're exactly right about that. I mean, my experience, like a lot of students, I actually went to another institution before I ended up at Lincoln University. I went, I was recruited to play basketball up in an institution in Massachusetts. And I went coming out as, as a kid, coming out of Brooklyn, New York, Brownsville section of Brooklyn, New York. You know, I just wanted to leave and go and, and explore and, you know, get out the hood, just be honest. And basketball, along with having decent grades, was a pathway for me to do that. But when I got on that campus, it was a majority white, small institution, a Catholic institution. Um, you know, I was, I was raised, a, you know, a Methodist. There were so many different differences, but the biggest difference was that there was like maybe 15 black students on campus and 11 of us was on the basketball team and it was only two black women on the campus. <laughs> and so, you know, when I got there, I was like, you know, the ball part of it was okay, but it was like, yo, this other whole experience that makes you a whole person, this is not for me. But, you know, I stuck it out. I stuck out the season and decided along the way that I was going to go to a black college. And somebody introduced me to Lincoln. I heard a Lincoln along the way. And when I got there and I got on the campus, my feeling, my feeling of being home from that previous experience was just like night and day. So, I think they're right. When you talk about being in good company and being around your people and being in your culture, being in your your lane, so to speak, uh, Lincoln absolutely was that. And since, you know, I've had lifelong friends from that experience being on that campus. You know, that's another reason for to uh, to attend HBCU and why we love it. But we're going to get to that in a moment. But you're exactly right. You know, we 
you know, we had back at Southern, we had people, we had a groups from California called the Cali Crew. Of course, you had the Chicago Crew right. with the Chicago House Music. You had the New Orleans Crew. You know, you had the Florida Crew. You had, you know, where we're from, Shreveport. We had the Port City Crew. I mean, everybody had their crews, and we were all different, right? right? And one thing that I noticed as well is that you have cats coming from, and of course, I'm dating myself. I use the word cat. But you got cats coming from, you know, Washington State, Seattle, you know, from the West Coast, from the Midwest, right? Saying, man, you know what I'm saying? I've, I've never seen so many, you know, beautiful, educated Black people in one place. Right. And, you know, they end up falling in love because they're like, hey, you know, we grew up in, quote unquote, diverse societies, but really it was majority white societies or if you're from a different area, you have, of course, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, and so forth, where you weren't the majority or your reasons or your reason for being or your causes weren't at the forefront. But by being an HBCU, you know, you're you're there because black, not only do black lives matter, black intellect matters, right. professional matters, black hair matters, black <laughs> athletes matter, everything matters, right, at HBCUs. You know, and the, the leaders of student government, black, you know, the quarterback, black, you know, the league had an issue with black quarterbacks, but we never had an issue for them. Right. Doug Williams, as black quarterbacks came from HBCUs, Grambling State University, Southern University, uh, all universities, they put out athletes, and that's where the league came to get top athletes, but I'm getting ahead of myself because yeah, you, yeah, you actually touched on some of number five, which is diversity, but go to number nine, scholarships and grants. Yeah. Number nine. It's a big <laughs> one for you. This is a big one for you, boy. You got it. You got kids get ready to enter into college. It's a big one for you. Talk about it. Hey brother, look, I'm, I'm on it like an Eagle. You know, my son, he's here and my son, you know, he's, he applied to about 10 plus universities and we narrowed it down. And, um, you know, one thing that my wife and I decided a long time ago is, you know, I'm a compulsive planner. You know, I take copious notes. Right. So like my wife was pregnant. I, I started planning their lives out to 25, right? Things that we would expose them to. And, and part of that was savings, right? So everybody starts a college saving plan. Well, brother, let me tell you, $25 a month don't go a long way. <laughs> <laughs> Even with compound no, interest. Not in this economy at all. I don't think it went a long way in the 80s or the 70s, but it's certainly not going a long way now. Absolutely not. And the fortunate thing about it is that even my wife and I, you know, we were fortunate enough to work together, both at Southern University right. and University. So we've always been together working on campus or really the majority of our, our 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 lives together. So I started to see the cost of education go up, brother. And I, I told my wife, I said, look, we could continue saving as we're saving, but we now have to push our kids to start looking for scholarships. And we were fortunate enough to teach a young lady uh, who grew up in Louisiana, a poor uh, town. She was a very good student, great parents, father and mother, but they just didn't have the money to send her to college, right? Well, so they told her, they tell her, baby, if you want to go to college, you got to find a way to pay for it yourself. We'll help you as much as we can. Right. So what are doing in ninth grade, she started writing, you know, a book. She started researching scholarships. Now, this is before it, the Internet. Right. So you have to get that book. Long story short, in four years, she accumulated over $100,000 in scholarship money. Now, you're talking about the late, the, the mid-90s. You know, that's a lot of money, right, to, to the early 2000s. 
So now I told my, my wife, I said, listen, we're going to, she wrote a book about it. I said, we're going to, we're going to do the same thing with our kids. So we started researching what they would like to do. Started putting them academically. Secondly, athletics. I told them you got to learn uh, life sports, but also a competitive sport. Right. So they all play golf. They all swim. I exposed them to tennis. And so they said, listen, we want to gravitate toward basketball. My oldest son toward golf, you know, and then also the arts. You know, we put them in exposure, Will. And bottom line is, you know, my oldest son plays all three saxophones and piano. Our youngest son, he tried the arts as far as that goes. But what ended up happening? But people, like, but people want to know if you can get scholarships and grants from yeah, HBCU. Look, this is what I'm saying. So when I looked at it from that aspect, Will, I said, okay, so we're going to apply for uh, uh, academic scholarships catered toward African Americans. We're going to apply for art scholarships in music that are catered toward African Americans. We're going to apply for scholarships in athletics that are catered toward African Americans. So look, I'm going to tell you, he got accepted to Howard University. Excellent, excellent. Academic scholarship. Uh, he's he's also in competition to be selected that pays all of it from room, board, tuition, books, everything. And then on top of that, there's other scholarships in the STEM area. He'll also Good. be playing. Good. So my point is, we were able to do all that at an HBC. That's right? that's excellent. I mean, I, one of the things that uh, my brother and I, Dr. Thomas Lavise, who is also an HBCU alum, he went to University of Maryland Eastern Shore and then went on to University of Michigan to get his master's and doctorate. So again, another case of you know HBCU being able to prepare you to to perform anywhere. But he and I together had written a book a few years ago for the Tom Joyner Foundation. You know, Tom Joyner, huge supporter of HBCUs. The book was Tom Joyner Presents How to Prepare for College. And in that book, even though it was written a few years ago, it's over 10 years old, but some of the basics in there are still very, very relevant. And one of the things we talked about was very much what you just said. You got to, as a student, if you do well in school, if you put yourself in a position where you have options, some school is going to see you as special. There will be grants and opportunities at HBCUs. They'll be at PWIs. But the most important thing is you got to put yourself in a position to be able to take advantage of these scholarships, these grants. And that's what you want. Scholarships and grants are things you don't pay back. You don't have to pay back. Loans are things you got to pay back. So we talked about that in that book. And right now, with the emphasis that has come upon HBCUs because of the um, ascension of Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris being an HBCU grad, Howard University, has brought a lot of attention as well as the Black Lives Matter movement really deserves a lot of credit for bringing attention to the inequities that exist. And so there's a lot more attention that's going to HBCUs in terms of donations. Um, um, we Lincoln received, you know, a, um, a donation from um, for 20 million among other schools in Norfolk State was amongst the, among that that came from the former uh, one of the founders of Amazon, Mackenzie. What is Mackenzie's la- last name? Mackenzie Scott. Right. I didn't want to say Mackenzie Phillips. That's that I'm dating myself. But Mackenzie <laughs> Mackenzie Scott, which we appreciate her and others who have done Absolutely. that kind of uh, commitment. So. The money and the attention is there, but you got to put yourself in a position to be blessed. If you don't put yourself in a position to be seen as special, 
to be able to receive these these um, these grants or scholarships is not going to matter. So number eight, alumni yep. associations for graduates of all HBCUs, alumni associations for graduates of yep. all HBCUs. Well, Will, I mean, all universities have alumni associations, so this is nothing germane to HBCUs, but you touched on it. You said we're getting a lot of attention from Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris becoming vice president of the United States. We can't forget about Raphael Warnock, a black preacher who went to Morehouse, who is the U.S. senator representing the state of Georgia. Right. Okay. <laughs> the state of Georgia. The that first. is That's huge. Yeah, that's huge. First African-American to represent the state of Georgia post-reconstruction in the U.S. Senate. I mean, so this alumni uh, uh, circle that we have are because they were so we were limited as African-Americans in every aspect and facet of, of life. You know, we've had to work toward getting in these areas. So, look, whether you go, if it weren't for HBCUs, we wouldn't have any, any Spike Lee. We wouldn't have uh, Samuel Jackson. Uh, we wouldn't have Felicia Rashad. We wouldn't have Debbie Allen. We wouldn't have Reginald F. Lewis on Wall Street, you know, who's the author of Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? You know, we wouldn't have all of these successful African-Americans in business, right. in all the Thurgood Marshalls, uh, in law, in, in politics, in medicine, and, and, and the like, entertainment galore. So the network of HBCUs and our alumni uh, uh, network is important because these are people who have helped to unlock the doors, some that kick down the doors, and others who have come in and are blazing trails in those industries. So that's why HBCU alumni associations, uh, just like HBCU alumni uh, on, on Facebook, it's very important because this is where you get an opportunity to see what you can do as an African-American in those industries. And, and also the alumni associations as organizations are also a big part of the experience because of the way that you are encouraged to continue to be involved in your university and to give back. Those associations yep. themselves become an avenue for you to do that. Like right now, I'm a lifetime member of my alumni association at Lincoln University. And I'm also right now, as we speak, in the process of uh, seeking a nomination to be on the board of trustees of Lincoln University as a nominee uh, presented by the Alumni Association. And so in our appreciate that. And so in our communities, because you're encouraged to give back, to stay engaged, those alumni associations become ways for you to be able to stay involved and to do that. And one of the things that we've been stressing a lot and that all HBCU alumni and family people connected need to do is to really give back, to give back of your time, your talent, and absolutely your treasure. You know, so no one can tell you what amount of money you should be giving, but you can look in your bank account and say, I know this university meant a lot to me. It, it was a significant part of my life story. So let me identify, let me budget, and let me give back so that other students can have that same type of experience. So if if when you initially get out, if $50 is all that you can do, then do that. If 25 is all that you can do, then do that. If you can do more, absolutely you should do more. You should look into your account, look into what your capability is and do that and graduate and, and increase and increase it as you're able to because that blessing, that ability to pay it forward and to give back is going to pay dividends with the next generation and with our community. Absolutely. You know, one thing that we've been able to do uh, uh, through through my law firm 
at, at, at Malmo Modern Law Center. We were able to give a donation to actually start um, and help the trial, a trial team that was starting up and, and even more money to help build on the legacy. There. Right. So again, like you said, you know, I wasn't able to give 3.5 million or 350,000, but I was able to give what I was able to give, you know, to give back to say, hey, we want to continue this legacy, which brings us to number seven. Number seven. Continue the legacy. Yes. You know, Will, I think one of the biggest, you mentioned it, there, there are two things we could do to really continue the legacy. Well, really three, in my opinion. Number one, you said it, give back, right? Whatever you can do, $20 a month, $25 a month. Uh, after you get your tax tax return, give a hundred dollars something. Right. But get start and graduate on up. Don't stay at 25, 20 yard, twenty years after you 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 graduate. Don't stay at twenty five. Now that's a problem. Go ahead. Look, look just like at church, they stayed at that twenty five dollars scholarship. You know, going to school. You know, I was like, look, fees going up, but you know, again, increase. Secondly, continue the legacy by encouraging your your children. That's the greatest compliment. That, uh, and that our schools can receive is that our children say we want to go to your alma mater or we want to build on the legacy of other HBCUs to continue that legacy. And uh, th- to me, that's the biggest. And third, we continue to advocate for HBCUs. You and I, others, Absolutely. and if you work in the industry, you know, and you see uh, other groups that are coming in and internship programs, say, hey, have you considered the HBCU in your community? Have you considered this? Consider that because a lot of people don't know right. about the great aspects of HBCUs. And some African-Americans outside of the South or the Northeast and uh, in the Midwest and some individuals who are non-Black, whites and Hispanics and the like, they don't know. So it gives us a chance to tell the story. So you know? so number six, empowerment. That that one is uh, very powerful for me because when I initially came to Lincoln, I wasn't sure of what uh, industry I was going to go in, what I was going to study. I didn't declare as a major, but I got empowered and discovered my calling as a journalist at Lincoln because of a professor, Joanne, Dr. Joanne Gavin, now at James Madison University there in Virginia. She looked at me one time in class. We're taking a class, which is a news writing class, which actually was the class that put together the student newspaper, the Lincolnian. So she looks at me one day in class because I'm looking at her and I'm like, Dr. Gavin is fine. Hey, I'm a 19-year-old student. I'm looking up at her. She looked at me, shook her head and said, you know what? I'm going to make you the editor of the paper. And I said, whatever you say, whatever you say, Dr. Gavin, you don't find Dr. Gavin. Well, it was after that and after I got into actually developing the paper, writing editorials, and I saw the impact that my writing had on other students, that's what actually hooked me on journalism. So here you had that moment where someone saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. They empowered me to what ended up being a 20, 20 plus year journalism career. I ended up coming down there to Virginia to be the first black Metro columnist at the Hampton Rose Daily Press, the, the paper across the water from me. So that just shows you how an experience like that at an HBCU professor who cares about you, sees your potential, can empower you to go on and do great things. Well, you know, I would look at it from a different perspective, you know, because empowerment just comes from being in a community Mm -hmm. of African-Americans, people that look like you, that are aspiring to learn just like you, that are pushing you to do great things uh, and you're pushing them. You know what I'm saying? So to me, you know, that's the empowerment 
And the fact that in communities, HBCUs are not just economic drivers, they're, but they're centers of expression right. of power right. and real power right. for the black if, if If you look at, and, and more specifically, HBCU law schools, I'm an advocate for creating more HBCU law schools and medical schools because we see the power when you have these entities in your community, the power that you have. There are several stories out about uh, NCCU, who has a law school there, uh, Texas Southern in Houston, how the, you have graduates from these universities that become judges, right? You're not going to see that when you have uh, eight, five, eight, ten black judges from the same law school right. elected. Southern University, classmates, my former students, as I, as I taught at the Law Center, adjunct professor of law there, some of my former students are now sitting on the bench. Right. I had exactly. five classmates, former students, just elected last, sworn in last year. That is tremendous. You know, which kind of brings us to the next the next point of diversity. Absolutely. You know, we, we touched on it before, Will, and, you know, black the black community is not monolithic. Not at all. We're, not at all. You know, and I hate when they put us in that category like that, you know, saying, oh, you're all just alike. But no, we're different. That doesn't mean that we are different and we oppose each other, but we're different approaching issues from a different perspective. And that's one thing that helped me to learn at HBCUs uh, and my HBCU and teach here is that that's how you learn to grow. Right. And that's how you learn to evolve. Right. So not only different perspectives and ideologies, we're different. We have great uh, diversity within us culturally. Like, for example, I'm also half Hispanic. I'm half Latino. My mother was Afro-Latino from the Dominican Republic. My father was born as African-American, born here, raised in the Caribbean. So I'm born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, one of the most diverse places where you got all kinds of flavor going on within the African diaspora, right? But guess what? I go down to Lincoln and I hear for the first time, not commercial uh, go-go music, you know, from Chuck Brown, the godfather of go-go, the father of go-go, I heard Bustin' Loose. I feel like Bustin' Loose when I was in New York. And it was like, okay, that's go-go. No, fella. You, when I got down to Lincoln, I heard real Chuck Brown. Right. And all of, the other, all of the other go-go. And I'm like, yeah, so you, I, I heard for the first time, for example, and I'm just talking about diversity in terms of music, I heard for the first time Too Short. Too Short is a legendary uh, rapper in Oakland. I heard for the first time, too. Now, here I am from Brooklyn, you know, where we think everything ends in terms of rap music in Brooklyn. And, make, you know, even though it, it began in the Bronx, we still taking it out of in Brooklyn saying we run. And then I heard Too Short for the first time. So you get in this variety where you have these students coming from all over the African diaspora. Then I had students where I'm chopping it up in the room from Africa, from South Africa, that's telling us about the struggle there, other fellow students from the Caribbean. So you get this diversity you see within our own people, within our own culture, yet you see how we are so closely connected. And I, I spoke about my mother. My mother was a, a Pan-Africanist, and she always taught about how all of the peoples whose ancestors made it through that, that transatlantic slave trade and who made it to the Americas and, and that we were all interrelated, that we were all cousins. We all had the same bloodline. I learned at Lincoln that there was more, there was more black people down in South America than in North America. There's more black people in, in Brazil than it is in the United States. 
So right. we have this wealth of diversity within our within our people. So when it always boggles my mind when people say, don't go to an HBCU because there's no diversity. It's not the real world. You only hear that from people that don't know anything about HBCUs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then look, we're not even going to talk about HBCUs not preparing for the real world because this political season, we, we just saw this, you know, and not just the political season, but we also saw researchers, persons who were involved in research, uh, medical research and so forth uh, at the forefront, people in, 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 in the legal environment, charging and leading in social justice and, and reform. I mean, look, so that argument is out the window, right? Absolutely. That it also shows the fear of people saying, wait a minute, is this what HBCUs are producing? Uh, there may be a threat here to status quo. But it goes also to number four. We talk about a supportive atmosphere. Mm-hmm. You know, HBCUs, like I said before, you know, is where black lives matter, black intellect matters, black hair matters, black music matters. Mm-hmm. We talked about music, you know, you know, a lot of people like I heard the uh town you know, house music, you know, I was like, man, what is this? But, you know, you kind of grew to it a little bit, right? It kind of grows on you. But then people from Chicago came down and heard about the New Orleans music, That's the right. bounce. That's right. Master Pete, you know, and then people from Atlanta brought in the outcasts and the groups that were coming out of there, you know, with, with, with LaFace Records and others who were rapping and so forth. And then people out of Florida, and you know, came out of Florida, South Miami. Luke, Luke. <laughs> yeah, you know, 95 South, you know. And all, all those guys, man. And then, of course, you know, from California, they're bringing in all different types of music uh, that we haven't heard, mm-hmm. but came from the South, right? We all came from the South. We spread and we created this phenomenal music and the atmosphere was supportive to that where you can have it. Man, look, you can have a Gumby haircut, a fade next semester. You can have it slicked back, slicked down. You can have it froed out, blowed out, twisted, and then... Nobody, nobody better. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so, so that brings us down to number three: classes, extracurricular, extra. Well, I can't speak. Extracurricular activities tailored to African Americans, and I can tell you, um, on the campus, the HBCU campus, especially one is as old as mine. For example, the Greek fraternity and sorority life is a huge part of the whole campus experience. And so I'm a member of Phi Beta Sigma fraternity and Mu chapter is one of the oldest chapters in the fraternity. So having gone through in the eighties, you already know that the the style of pledging and what I experienced, you already know that it was old school. So, but the thing about the organization is that they maintain that emphasis on still doing positive work in the community. And unlike a lot of the uh, white fraternities and sororities, it extends after you graduate. So it becomes a network. It's not just, for most people, not just something that you did when you were in college, but it's something that continues on and you continue to be able to to use those as avenues to get back into engaging your university as well as engaging the community. Because all of those organizations were very much founded with the principles of uplifting the Black community, doing something positive, empowering these newly educated African-Americans coming out of, you know, generations of slave of slavery and coming into education being an important pathway for upliftment. All of these organizations had this emphasis on empowering, doing something positive for the community. So those kinds of organizations and opportunities I mentioned, you know, already being made the editor of the newspaper 
and how that changed my life. So in these environments, HBCUs, especially the Greek life, again, not just something that you do in college, but something that continues on throughout the rest of your life. Absolutely. And and not just that, but coming just not just from Greek life, but also, like you said, the newspaper, the SGA, right. uh, the Student Government Association, they, at the law school, the Student Bar Association. You know, all of these were geared toward African-Americans and African-Americans for leadership purposes. Still writing the same quality, you know, as others. But again, you take the leadership part and we see individuals who are in the industries now having leadership there. Which brings us to number two, caring professors and faculty. Now, let me say this. For me, this really hits home because both at law school and undergrad, there were two people that really took me under their wing. And without them, I wouldn't be who I am today. I want to give a shout out to my good friend, mentor, and just just, just a phenomenal human being, uh, John Pierre, who is the chancellor of Southern University Law Center, one of my former professors. And, you know, as a professor, you know, we just we just kind of connected, right? And from there, you know, to this day, we, we talk almost every day, every single day. Now, this gentleman here advises people uh, from Washington all the way across to the West Coast. You know, he's the person that everybody calls uh, when they need some advice and things of that nature. Knows everybody, smart as a whip, just brilliant within its, its own right. And, um, you know, again, just took me under his wing. And any any opportunity that's out there, you know, he exposes exposes it to us. So uh, for him, I wouldn't be an attorney today if it wasn't for him. In undergrad is Dr. Lee Lacerdine. Mm. Dr. Lacerdine became my college mother. Uh, when I was slipping in my grades, she pulled me to the side and she laid me out, you know, and, <laughs> and she looked like my mother. I'm telling you, she laid me out, brother. And Dr. Lacerdine was actually Lebanese. And she was over here yeah. on, on asylum because she fought in the Civil War in the 80s, back back in Lebanon. She's passed away now. But when you said, you know, the caring professors, you know, she pushed me to learn about international relations. Uh, we, I created a Model UN organization at the school. Uh, we learned about South Africa. We learned about Tommy and Principe. We learned about other nations and learned about international diplomacy. We were able to go to New York. I was able to visit the UN. I was able to spend three days. It showed there. you how everything tied together. How that you know these are not yeah. just separate abstract things, but they all tie together. Liberation is worldwide. Absolutely, Absolutely. but Will, like I said, man, if, and I had I had to take a couple of minutes to talk about those two people. If, if it wasn't for them, it you know I, I wouldn't be here at all. Right. Absolutely. And you know, and I mentioned Dr. Joanne Gavin for me. Also, Dr. Willis in the English department. Uh, the late uh, Clarence Kenny was a fraternity brother. He was administrator on campus, always took care of us. But let me ask, is it still like that? You're on Norfolk State's campus now. Is it still like that? Are the current students experiencing that? Absolutely, absolutely. I, 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 was, on a, um, uh, I was on a virtual panel with one of our state delegates who was just elected from Norfolk State University, representing the second uh, uh, district here, state district in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And she talked about you know, the professors that were here uh, that helped to mold and shape her. She had other right. classmates on there that talked about that. And they had a current student from Virginia State University that talked about their professor. And 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 listen, for me, you know, I'm known as an internship guy and uh, an opportunity guy. You know, I've, I've, I've placed uh, over 120, I graduated 125 students right. out of the law program that we created, placed them in law schools, 80 law school acceptances across the country. 
five and a half million dollars in scholarships. And it's because, you know, again, my I care for those students. I care for them, still do, um, and, and still do for my students today. So, yeah, it exists. That's excellent. Which brings us down to the final one, number one, a first-rate education. I was Absolutely. doing some uh, research, you know, in preparing for um, a candidate's forum that I had with uh, other candidates for the Lincoln Board of Trustees. And one of the things, just, just browsing and looking, I looked up Lincoln's first uh, Black president, which I knew was uh, Horace Mann Bond, Julian Bond's father, right? But the thing that I wasn't as much aware of, the Horace Mann Bond, as part of his story, was that he was alum of Lincoln. I knew that. But then he went on to the University of Chicago, where he got his master's and his doctorate. And in that experience, he says about how when he got to the University of Chicago, he realized that he was prepared to compete with any student on the planet. So he graduated. He came out of the University of Chicago with the highest honors as one of the top students. Um, I mentioned earlier myself having come out of Lincoln University and then going to the University of Arizona, graduate school of journalism, getting my doctorate from ODU. When I was at the University of Arizona, I had no, no um, reservations at all about my ability to compete. I mentioned my brother, Dr. Thomas Levis, University of Maryland Eastern Shore, HBCU, went to the University of Michigan for his master's and his doctorate. He's one of the top sociologists. In, in the nation, he's now the dean of the School of Public Health at Tulane. He, when he tells that story about when he got to University of Michigan, he knew he was ready to compete. All of us, anybody who says these institutions are not top rate institutions that prepare you to compete anywhere is absolutely another person who knows nothing about HBCUs. Because all I did was just tell your story, right, Eric? Absolutely, absolutely. And again, that argument goes out the door. I would not be who I am today unless I attended in a Southern University and Southern University Law School. I, I, I wouldn't be. Um, I love teaching HBCUs as well. I love being a professor at HBCUs. I love the radio show that I do here at HBCU here at Norfolk State on WNSB. Um, I love every aspect of HBCU. I love that my son chose. You know, my son applied to several of the Ivy League schools, several of the top uh, private tier schools. Uh, he applied to one of the plus plus two Ivy League schools. You know, and of course, uh, he applied to his top HBCU, which was Howard University. And when we took him on campus, Will, uh, took him on campus twice, I said, son, where do you want to go? He said, Howard and nowhere else. I said, you're not going to wait for the decision from you know, Princeton, you're not going to wait for a decision from MIT or the other schools. He said, no, Howard is where I'm going. So it's that type of education, that type of exposure that I believe that, again, we pass on to the next generation and the legacy continues to go for our great schools. I love my HBCUs and support them. Well, look, Will, this was a fun segment. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, all of you that are out there, continue to follow us. Thank you for your support. Continue to follow us on our social media, uh, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, <laughs> Twitter, wherever it is, YouTube, follow us there. And until then, be well.